Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the state of international climate negotiations and the intersection of capitalism and colonialism in the role of indigenous peoples around the world in stewarding the lands in a climate-friendly way. Clips today are from The United States of Anxiety, Tisky Sour, The Brian Lehrer Show, and Consider This, with additional members-only clips from Tisky Sour and This Is Hell. First off, COP, you know, for those who aren't following, that's Conference of Parties. That's the the, the nations who have agreed to, to a treaty to, to reduce our emissions. And I like how you put it in your article. You wrote that, quote, COP26 is a sequel to COP21, which is an attempt to co- recover from the mess of COP15. You know, and you say we've got to go all the way back to the conference that preceded all of these, quote, bad cops. And that was the 1992 so-called Earth Summit. So take us back there. This was in Rio, 1992. Why is it important to understand what happened there for understanding our climate conversations now? Yeah, so that that was a you know big moment. It was called the Earth Summit, and it itself was the 20th anniversary of a big summit that had been held in 1972 in, in Stockholm. And what happened at the Earth Summit was climate change was in the scientific community already, you know, alarm bells going off. And one of the important things to understand about climate change and why it's somewhat different from some other sort of pollution problems is it's it's a cumulative problem. Whatever you put up there stays up there for a very long time. And also there's a time lag in the system. So scientists were saying, you may not be seeing climate change now, but if you continue down this path, you know, disastrous things are going to happen. And that had gotten the attention of, you know, quote unquote, world leaders. And so a document called the UN United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was drawn up and it committed signatories to avoiding what what's sort of a terrible mouthful, dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. That is the goal. And it left undefined what that was, what was dangerous, and it left undefined how we were going to do it. And at the insistence of the U.S., this was under George H.W. Uh, Bush, there were no timetables, there were no targets in this. It was a very uh, vague document. And we've been dealing with sort of the consequences of that ever mm. since. Now, one of the good consequences is it sailed through the Senate. It passed the Senate unanimously. They approved the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change. So there was a time when, you know, this was sort of, quote-unquote, uncontroversial, but we've been struggling ever since to figure out what to do. And one thing I should say, we could go even further back, if you really want to set the stage for this, to what was called the Montreal Protocol, which phased out ozone-destroying chemicals. And that was back in the 80s, in 1987. And that was a UN agreement to phase out these chemicals that were you know, destroying the ozone layer, and the ozone layer protects us from ultraviolet radiation. So that was a big deal. And a lot of people thought, well, if we raise the alarm about climate change, the same thing will happen. We will phase out fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of optimism about that that has you know, since long been lost. Let's put it that way. Let's look at how far we are from where we need to be. Climate Action Tracker have said that current pledges put the world on course for 2.4 degrees 
of warming. That's down from a 2.7 degree projection at the start of the conference, although obviously way too high. They also said, though, that in an optimistic scenario where countries met their 2050 targets, it could be the case that warming could be limited to 1.8 degrees this century. Simon, you you understand climate modelling much better than me. You're a climate scientist. How have they managed to come to these very different figures, 2.4 and 1.8? I'm sure there's a world of difference between those two things. What's the difference between what they consider their you know, their mid-range number and what they see as their optimistic one? So their mid-range number is if you take all of the national climate plans, nationally determined contributions in the jargon that have been sub- submitted to the UN and those pledges from last week, uh, you know, on deforestation and methane and, and the other announcements, and then you project those forward and then you include uh, changes in technology and other changes in the world that are expected, you come out with 2.4 degrees Celsius warm. The 1.8 is, and you take that, those 2030 figures where we keep emissions roughly the same as they are now, and then you assume that every country that said it will then get to net zero by 2050 or 2060 goes on a straight slope down to net zero. And that's just completely unrealistic. There's no way, for example, that Saudi Arabia, whose emissions are rapidly increasing are then going to suddenly decarbonize uh, completely in the 30 years following that. So I think we can discard that 1.8, but what it does show, this difference between 2.4 and and somewhere down at at 1.8, is that there's a huge implementation gap, that we have these long-term targets, but the the, the near-term policies are just not there yet. And that's why this decade is so important. And why we need to bring countries need to come back next year to be able to try and bridge that gap and get onto a trajectory where emissions actually start to fall rather than keep going up as they have done over the, the last 30 years. This is from the BBC. It's showing the emission cuts which are needed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees by 2030 and the ones which have actually been pledged. So you can see the pledges before COP26, 52 gigatons. After COP26, that's down to 41 gigatons. But what we actually need to limit warming to 1.5 degrees is to be at 26.6 gigatons. So we're not even halfway there from before and after COP26. I think we often conceptualize climate change as a legacy of the Industrial Revolution, which means that we think of it as something that started in like 1750 or 1850. But well, first of all, the industrialization of the world as a whole really didn't begin until the middle of the 20th century. You know, up until 1850, the lion's share of all global carbon emissions were produced by the UK. And even thinking about the problem, the math from the perspective of the present, basically all of it has been done since World War II. I think the figure is something like 90% of all carbon emissions ever produced in the history of humanity have come since World War II. And that means a lot of things. It means that the crisis is a relatively recent creation. And it means that many of the people who are most responsible, both at the sort of individual level, at the corporate level and at the national level, are alive today and often in power. So fully a quarter of the damage, as you mentioned, a half since um, the early 90s, that's startling itself. A quarter of the damage that's been done to the climate has been done since 2008, since Joe Biden was elected vice president. 
So we're really still doing this damage very much in real time. It's not just that we're not doing enough to clean up the the mess that was left behind by our grandparents. We are creating the mess. We're creating a much bigger mess than our grandparents, and we're still not doing nearly enough about it. Now, it's important to keep in mind in thinking about all that, that because carbon hangs in the atmosphere for centuries and maybe even longer, that carbon, the carbon that was produced in the U.S. in 1995 or was produced in China in 2003, that carbon's not gone. It's still warming the planet. It is the reason that we have a climate crisis today. And unless we take it out of the air, it's the reason we're going to still have a climate crisis for centuries to come. Um, so we often think about cl- carbon emissions in terms of future emissions trajectories. You know, how can we get China and India and Sub-Saharan Africa on a, um, a cleaner path? Those things are really important. But we're at the point we are today where we're talking about a make or break climate conference. We're at that point because of emissions that we've already produced in the past. Some people call them historical emissions, some call them legacy emissions, and they're not going to go away unless we do something about them, which means that, you know, it is still American responsibility with the responsibility of the global, that you know, it's our fault that we're in the bind that we're in today. Another stat you give in that regard is that, that one transatlantic airline ticket yields more emissions than the average person living in sub-Saharan Africa generates in an entire year. And it it made me wrestle with sort of how we think about the the balance between individual level accountability and responsibility and response versus, you know, the fossil fuel companies level of responsibility and response and just sort of how we as individuals then enter into this conversation. Yeah, I think in a country like the U.S., it's easy to think that there are basically two teams. There's like a team science climate, which is basically progressive or liberal. And there's a team denier conservative that's like a fossil fuel business that's sort of on the other side. And those fights are real. Those disputes are real. And, you know, even down to the level of individual behavior, there are certain groups of people that are behaving much more responsibly when it comes to climate change and others who are behaving much less responsibly. When you pull out and think about it in the global context, you know, it's really just about what country you're from and how rich you are. And the huge gap is between the countries of the global north and the countries of the global south, not between liberals um, and Republicans, not between environmentally conscious people and environmentally fatalistic people. You know, this, these gaps are just so enormous. The average American emits something like 20 times the, the average Kenyan or Ugandan and maybe more than 100 times um, the, what the average person in, say, Mali or some of the most poor countries in the world emits. And so from the perspective of the global South, like whether you support a Green New Deal, whether you voted for Joe Biden, those are relatively trivial aspects of your sort of carbon profile. Mm. Um, from the perspective of the global South, just about everybody who's um, not very poor in a place like the US or Western Europe is just doing an enormous amount of damage. And we think, oh, we can, we can behave a little more responsibly. We can eat a little less meat. We can buy an electric car. Those things do help, but they help off of a baseline of a very, very brutal baseline in which basically every American is just doing quite a lot of damage to the stability, well-being, livelihood, and you know potential for future human flourishing in the developing world. Sort of along these lines, but but challenging them a bit, is there somebody on Twitter, you know, given the fact that Big Oil's delegation at COP26 was larger than that of any country, shouldn't COP be changed to the Conference of Petroleum, our Conference of Polluters to better reflect reality? So it's, you know, at the same time that we are all individuals, there are these big structural things that have sh- that showed up, even at this very conference. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I don't want to minimize the the, ability of the fossil fuel companies or the, the moral um, cowardice that's been shown by not just American political leaders, but political leaders all around the world over the last generation 
who knowing, you know, everything that fossil fuel use was doing to the planet, nevertheless, sort of continued on in a business as usual way. I think those are, those are real differentials. I don't mean to suggest the average American is, you know, as guilty as Rex Tillerson or whatever. I just think it's, you know, it's important to understand that we are all also operating still in, within those systems, which have been designed to benefit us and are built on the back of fossil fuel use. It is now the case that you can look around the world and see paths of possible greener prosperity. That is the wonderful promise of renewable energy, which is now cheaper in 90% of the world than dirty energy is. But for all of human history, wealth has been created basically by the use of fossil fuels. And so countries and people are rich because of the use of fossil fuels, which means because they're polluting or even poisoning the planet. You know, we have a culture now where, especially in the U.S., um, we tend to regard wealth as sort of clean, all these beautiful people with their clean skin and their fit bodies and (laughs) healthy diets. But the truth is, it's, you know, from a climate perspective, it's really the opposite. You know, wealth is extremely dirty. Poverty, as much as people in the U.S. regard it as dirty, is from a climate perspective, really quite clean. Mm. Um, And we are living high off the hog here in the U.S. and across Europe by basically imposing pollution on parts of the world that, that can't deal with it. Now, we're going to deal with it too, but it's the equatorial band of the planet, the developing countries of the world who are expecting the most intense impacts, who are already experiencing the most intense impacts, and of course, both have the least resources to deal with those impacts and also did the least to cause the problem in the first place. Julian, as an activist who's concerned with wealth inequality around the world and with the fate of indigenous peoples around the world, do you experience any tension over this particular provision? Because the goal, at least if we take it earnestly from those who want to phase out coal and other fossil fuels more slowly, is that the poor nations of the world need some leeway here to build their economy while the United States and other wealthier nations have had that leeway before the world started to get at all serious about global warming for all these decades and look at the wealth disparities that have come as a result. So do you have any sympathy for more leeway on fossil fuels for developing countries so that they can get their standards of living up higher more quickly? Yes, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges of the clean energy transition, which is the the fact that in the broadest, you know, climate atmospheric future of our species sense, you know, we must do everything in our power to transition to a future that, you know, produces less and less emissions over time. And, you know, transitioning away from coal is one of the best ways to do that. But... On the other hand, you know, coal power is in particular a very labor intensive kind energy source. And it has been in many parts of the world, you know, the foundation, you know, here in the United States in West Virginia, in not that far from Glasgow, actually parts of northern England and and all around the world, you know, sort of the lifeblood in a sense of a certain era of industrial capitalism, you know, coal miners were a major force and are a major force in many different parts of, of the world. And, you know, the, the challenge here to me is more about how do we 
you know, ensure that in the transition to a future that, that, you know, runs on a lot less and maybe no coal, that the workers in those industries and, and the economies around them, you know, get the kinds of economic support that you need. And when you're in a situation where, you know, the commitments made at the Copenhagen summit 12 years ago of, you know, the developed nations, the wealthy nations of the world to finance, you know, 100 to the tune of $100 billion, you know, the transition to clean energy and adaptation to global warming in developing nations and island nations, the reality that that money has not materialized 12 years later, you know, I, I do, I do very much sympathize with the perspective of, you know, say in India, and for that matter, you know, the perspective of uh, a coal miner in a place like West Virginia, you know, I think that that is a very legitimate perspective, a perspective that comes from, you know, the need for, you know, good work and, and, and the kinds of growth and benefits that come from it. But, you know, look, a lot of people have gotten very wealthy during this pandemic. It's not like there's not enough capital sloshing around, you know, the, the, the more well-off portions of, of our economic system, the the challenge it seems to, has to do more with you know the willingness to redistribute some of that capital and apply some of that capital in areas where it might create new kinds of economic benefits um, around things like solar energy and wind power, um, and wind power in particular, you know, can be the bedrock of a new sort of uh, industrial capitalism that involves organized labor and, and creates the same sorts of good paying union jobs that that we saw in the era of coal power. I want to read the beginning of Article 6 for our listeners because they probably haven't heard it anywhere else. It says that the pact, quote, acknowledges that climate change has already caused and will increasingly cause loss and damage and that as temperatures rise, impacts from climate and weather extremes, as well as slow onset events, will pose an ever greater social, economic, and environmental threat. And it also directly references indigenous peoples and local communities. How significant is the acknowledgement and the whatever reparations go with that? You know, I think it's very significant because Article 6 generally has to do with the creation of emissions trading markets. So these are sort of cap and trade markets where economies and countries that, you know, are able to take faster action on climate change, you know, get a certain number of tradable emissions credits and then can sell those credits to, you know, economies and countries and corporations that perhaps are not able to take action so quickly. And often this has to do with actually, you know, real trees and real things that are that are helping, you know, those that that carbon in the ground rather than up in the sky. And the places where that's happening is most often actually in the homelands of native peoples throughout the Americas and in other parts of the world. And the complexity around those sorts of regimes, you know, cannot be overstated. In some instances, these kinds of carbon trading markets have been used by indigenous communities to actually bring real revenue into their communities and to preserve some of their homelands. In parts of Canada, you know, there are First Nations who really support these kinds of policy systems. And I've gone to some of them and reported on some of those situations. In other parts of the world, however, there has been a very troubling track record of these sorts of emissions trading schemes that, you know, call on the protection of particular patches of forests that belong to indigenous communities or are used by indigenous communities to then actually keep 
those areas from being used by Native peoples in the traditional, perhaps cultural or harvesting practices that they have been used in, you know, for millennia. And so there is this real concern that in one of the sort of key um, solutions that's being put forward to the climate crisis, there might actually be a sort of financial land grab that's happening once again in parts of the Amazon and, and in Native communities around the world. And so I think that that language acknowledging Indigenous peoples is really important because, you know, the there are very real uh, concerns that have actually been proven in some instances, particularly in Brazil, where these kinds of, you know, carbon credit type systems have actually dispossessed people of their lands. And of course, that's not something that we want to see happening in the fight against climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas' mission is simple. They make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So this holiday, when you gift Bombas to someone on your list, you're also giving them to someone in need as well. It's a give-give. And while Bombas started with socks because they're the number one requested item at homeless shelters, they've expanded to cover requests number two and three underwear and t-shirts. As always, they're committed to quality with everything being made from super soft materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, while the construction is seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel, making them the coziest gifts for everyone on your list, complete with festive gift boxes so you don't even need to wrap them. And of course, there's a Bombas for every need, from athletic performance for every sport to festive holiday and lots more. So go to bombas.com slash best and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. I spoke earlier um, to Katana Chand Rasakaran, who wrote a great article um, for Navarra Media on this, in fact. So this is what she told me about nature-based solutions and their role at COP26. So all the targets to achieve the mitigation are net zero, and the net means that it is the carbon emissions that you emit minus what you're able to draw down from the atmosphere, carbon sequestration or carbon removal. And that's where the nature-based solutions come, because nature-based solutions are what enables so trees and forests or soil carbon, for example, draws down carbon from the atmosphere. But what they're essentially saying is that they're going to achieve net zero, which means what they are going to do and what they're already doing in, at the moment, corporations, 1,500 corporations, rich country governments are going to keep emitting, according to their trajectories, expand fossil fuel extraction. The UK itself has 40 new fossil fuel projects, but will then use land in the global south, forests and trees, to offset the emissions that they're going to emit. And that's what nature-based solutions here is about. So it's actually in the COP text now, not as the term nature-based solutions, but as the term nature as net carbon sink and enhanced carbon removals from nature. So there's a lot of definitions you'll hear for how lovely nature-based solutions is and what it is, but this is what is actually the politics of nature-based solutions. Aaron, do you agree with that? Do you think, I I mean, you've you've talked about some of the ambiguities about nature-based solutions. We are going to need to have significant extraction of carbon from the air though aren't we because as far as i understand our carbon budget is going to be used up in six years unless you know we really really have a dramatic transformation in sort of how the world deals with this kind of thing 
I mean, what's your take? And you know, this is quite hard for some people to understand, Michael, because they think, my God, look, the green movement has been talking about deforestation for decades. We're saying, here's more trees and it's still not making you happy. Maybe you're being contrarians. We thought you would treat others. But it's a bit more complicated than that, Michael, because if you don't plant the right trees in the right place, it doesn't, it doesn't just not solve the problem. It can actually make things worse. So examples, for instance, of trees being planted in certain areas, pine trees in Latin America, and they take up too much water, and actually they do nothing for biodiversity. They might not live very long. Often the initial reforestation efforts in China, trees were dying, about half of the trees being planted were dying. And of course, the worry is if you have reforestation where you chop down some trees, which is, will continue for at least 10 years, and you plant them elsewhere, and elsewhere they're sucking up precious water reserves, or most of them are dying, or they've got no biodiversity, it's still a massive net loss, Michael. I think we have to get this really through as political common sense. If we're serious about expanding the forested parts of the planet, which we have to do, you're absolutely right. It's a critically necessary thing to do. That has to be led by indigenous peoples. That's not some woke thing I'm trying to say to score brownie points and to look cool or to, 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 to knock you know, Western governments. These are the people who presently administer, I believe, 70 to 80% of the world's like rainforests and habitats like that. They're, ver- they're very good at maintaining these places, being custodians of these places. And so if we're going to adopt that strategy, Michael, which you're saying rightly that we have to do, you have to center indigenous peoples. Uh, and it can't just be, you know, the UK says, I'll give you an example. We're going to plant 30,000 hectares every year after 2025. Well, how many trees per hectare? What kinds of trees? These are hugely important questions. Secondly, you also have all these commitments around planting trees. We actually break it down. It often looks like there isn't really enough land. And that's before you sort of ask questions about, well, people live on this land. Where are you going to put them? Obviously, conflicts between agricultural land. We need to use land for, for agricultural purposes. And you're saying also we need to use it as a carbon sink. I mean, that's something that Bill Gates says. I agree with him. You know, he says there's an important conversation here. We need to feed the planet equitably and, and, and in a far healthier way than we presently do, you need to be careful about saying, well, we can just give multiple Australias over to reforestation tomorrow. Well, it's a planet of seven and a half billion people. It's going to be 10 billion probably sometime this century. They need to live somewhere. They need to eat. That's, that's a lot harder than it sounds. So the reforestation thing is good. It's positive. It's a, it's, it's a really positive thing that we're here. But the likes of Bill Gates, billionaire class, are attracted to it for a reason. And the reason is... Actually, twofold. The first is it allows them to carry on burning fossil fuels for a little bit longer, really into, into the second half of the century, which should not be happening for developed countries. Secondly, this, of course, provides a whole new area of financialization because you can trade with the carbon, you can create futures markets. And actually, the idea of nature being a commodity is why we're in this situation in the first place. And I find it very hard to believe it'll therefore be part of the, the solution. So I think criticisms of tree, of tree planting, reforestation, they may sound strange initially, but it's being adopted and it's all the, the rage at COP26 for a reason, because it means we don't talk about the thing that matters the most, which is stopping fossil fuels. We can't drill any more oil and gas wells. And yet in this country, we're doing it in dozens of places. China, which I think is doing considerably better than the United States or any European country, is still going to open dozens of new coal-fired power stations over the next decade. If we're serious about 1.5, none of that would be happening, but it is. So the idea of net zero and reforestation to sort of redress 
carrying on with this business as usual. And at the same time saying, well, we can stick to 1.5, 1.5 to stay alive. It's 2.4, it's three degrees. And, and three degrees C is, is really concerning. You know, today, well, the last 24 hours, I think we had about 1,200 documents of migrants come here in the UK uh, over the English Channel. Look, in a world of three degrees warming, that's a walk in the park. You're going to see displacement of billions of people. And so 1.5 is still very possible, but net zero as an agenda, I think, kind of locks in us going far beyond it. As 23-year-old Brianna Fruin, one of the young activists I met here this week. I was telling someone earlier this week, like, they were asking, how do you know you live with the climate crisis? And I said, well, I can recall the smell of mud. The smell of mud in her home country, Samoa. I don't know if you've ever been like a storm or a flood, Mm -hmm. but when the flood drains back into the ocean, it leaves piles and piles of mud. And so Mm -hmm. I've scooped mud out of my house. Brianna is part of a group called Pacific Climate Warriors. They represent small island nations, some of the countries most vulnerable to a warming planet. She opened the first day of the COP26 summit here in Glasgow, speaking to leaders from all over the world. Pacific youth have rallied behind the cry, we are not drowning, we are fighting. This is our warrior cry to the world, we are not drowning, we are fighting. It's a fight young people are waging from Samoa to Uganda. There, 24-year-old activist Vanessa Nakate told me the problems include extreme drought, flooding, and landslides. So with the rising global temperatures, it means that is loss of people's farms, drying of people's crops, destruction of people's houses. In Glasgow this week, I heard all kinds of stories like this. Young activists from around the world say climate change is already transforming their countries. And to Brianna Fruin of Samoa, it matters how we tell that story. A lot of people think my role here at COP is to come and cry. Like, I owe them my trauma mm-hmm. when I don't owe you my trauma. If I want to come here in, like, bright pink and neon colors and be like, I'm a very happy person and this is the happiness I'm trying to save, then, then that's, that's what gives me the energy to be in this space. The youth climate movement is trying to translate that energy into action. Here's a passage Vanessa Nakate of Uganda wrote in her new book, A Bigger Picture. We've seen what's happening on the ground. We have less access to resources and power, and so we feel more accurately what occurs when the little we have is taken from us, washed away in the rising waters or withering in the unrelenting sun. Consider this. The world's youngest generations have the most to lose to catastrophic climate change. Being an indigenous youth at COP is extraordinarily limiting and tokenizing in a number of ways, both by nature of being indigenous and by being youth. Ruth Miller is 24, and she's one of nine people squeezed into a four-bedroom rental house above a corner pub. I met them at the halfway point of the summit when they'd already spent a week in demonstrations, meetings, and panel discussions. One of them said the first week felt like one long day with naps. Ruth Miller grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. Some of her roommates here are from New Zealand or islands in the South Pacific. They're hanging out in a living room with low wooden furniture covered in mustard-colored velvet cushions, joking about some of their shared experiences as kids who grew up in Native communities. Without planning on it, they all brought different kinds of smoked fish to Scotland. Salmon from Alaska, eel from New Zealand, 
they bond over memories of fry bread. Like, there's always a version of fry bread across like this indigenous is this cheap people. Food. Yeah. Are you guys gonna hate me? Okay, <laughs> I only tried fry bread the first time, like beginning of this year. <gasps> I, know, I know. I know. But of course, their connections go much deeper than food. When I ask if they're learning new things from each other's experiences in different parts of the world, Ruth says that's not exactly it. They come here with a shared view of how lands and waters are connected and how to care for them. It does seem less, you know, learning new things and more like meeting a long-lost family member that you haven't seen in quite some time. Everyone squeezes around the dining table for a family-style meal of takeout Thai food. 23-year-old Tiana Jakasevich leads everyone in a blessing. They talk logistics for the next day's events, planning out how to get to and from the conference site. Um, tomorrow will be really, really busy, so we probably okay. do need to leave quite early. Because I should mention, this house they rented is not in Glasgow. We're in a city called Stirling, almost an hour north of where the summit is taking place. They had to raise their own money for this trip. Staying in Glasgow was way too expensive. And that's a metaphor for their experience of the conference itself. They're often on the outside looking in, trying to carve out space for their people. It was deeply difficult and extractive and tokenizing to be here. Ruth Miller and Tiana Jakasevich sat down with us to talk about their shared experience here. And that includes their experience of a warming planet from the Arctic, where Ruth is from, to the Southern Hemisphere, where Tiana lives. While Ruth's ice is melting, our seas are rising. And yeah, so we are intrinsically connected to the Earth and each other through that. Tiana woke up in Scotland recently to news that her small town was in a state of emergency after three months' worth of rain fell in 48 hours. And she's seen slower changes, too. When I was little, we used to go down to the beach and collect tuatua, which is like a little shellfish, and you used to just dig in the sand for them. And every year we kept going back, and they moved every year. And then about five years ago, we couldn't find them. Hmm. Um, so at this point in time, where we've always been able to collect tua tua from, we no longer can anymore. That's in New Zealand, and Alaska is heating up much faster than the rest of the planet. Ruth has seen record-setting wildfires and relocations from land that her people have lived on for generations. But of course you can't relocate your grandparents' graves. You can't relocate your ancient sacred sites. You can't adapt to the places that are lost due to climate change. This past year, when I was forced to watch our thika, our salmon, dying in our streams of heat stroke, it was heartbreaking. That's why these activists put in the work, raised the money, and risked their health to fly to Scotland during a pandemic. But now that they're here, it sometimes feels like everyone wants to put them in a box. Whitening our speech and whitening the way that we behave and wearing um, blazers and such. I mean, if we do bring our whole indigenous selves, it gets translated as a photo opportunity Mm. in cop spaces. How do you deal with that? Prayer. We bring our prayer, and we bring our spiritual fortitude. We bring our traditions, and we bring our medicines. We take care of one another. Sometimes they're invited to panels where they feel like organizers only want them to demonstrate victimhood. And they show up with more than stories of suffering. A number of us are extremely well-versed 
in the substantive content of particularly Article 6 of the Paris Agreement of a number of negotiating platforms. Article 6 is about carbon markets, a system that lets companies buy or sell credits towards a specified amount of CO2 emissions. The activists here see it as a gift to big business, a plan that endorses systems of capitalism that created these problems in the first place. We work in these fields as well as being youth, and yet most of what I have talked about is how difficult it is for youth to be heard. Hmm. We don't even get to talk about what we would talk about if we were heard. They'd also (laughs) like to see plans to protect human rights and indigenous rights spelled out in the text of the COP agreement. Last week, Ruth Miller says she was offered a platform where she could have raised some of these ideas. She was invited to speak at an Indigenous Peoples event with Alok Sharma, the president of COP26. Then the schedule ran long and the meeting abruptly ended before she could speak. So at the house in Sterling, I asked her... Like, what would you have said if you had been given that opportunity that you were told you would have? I would remind him of our indigenous diplomats and the ways that we call in deep community. And then she says she would have offered him a traditional song. My people come from volcanoes. And this song um, was gifted to me in a time of great need. And it is a song of deep, deep earth and of ancestors that are older than human. It is a song that reminds me of embers. And the way that we tend to our fires. But what I would have reminded him of is that our embers are not ones that easily go out or fade away. The embers of our indigenous voices, if they are neglected or ignored, they tend to start fires. I can't promise that Alok Sharma will hear this. (laughs) But if you would like to share that for an audience that will hear it. That's Ruth Shvai Kieson Miller. She is native Denaina Atabaskan from Alaska. Well, so Vanessa Nakate's speech in Milan was meant to refocus the conversation at meetings like COP26 on exactly this. She and others say we can't only talk at this point about how to reduce emissions and adapt to the damage done. We need to have another conversation altogether. And let me play another piece of of her speech on this idea. But there is one thing I almost never hear leaders talk about, and that is loss and damage. For many of us, reducing and avoiding is no longer enough. You cannot adapt to lost cultures. You cannot adapt to lost traditions. You cannot adapt to lost history. You cannot adapt to starvation. And you cannot adapt to extinction. 
So David, what are some examples of the things that people are already experiencing in places that are not actually responsible for the destruction of the climate? What, what, what are some of the things that you talk about in the article? Well, there's an there's a ongoing famine right now in Madagascar where as many as half a million people are experiencing extreme hunger and probably 30,000 or 50,000 are on the brink of, of death from that in what the UN has called uh, the first climate famine. There are you know droughts, intense flooding, much beyond what anybody has experienced in sub-Saharan Africa or really across South Asia. You have unprecedented heat waves. Although the truth is we actually know a lot less about the heat impacts um, and some of these other climate impacts as well, because climate scientists don't even really study the the global south of the uh, the developing world nearly as much as they study the global north. Our data is much more piecemeal, but all there are huge problems with using economic projections as total measures of this stuff. But I think to some degree they're useful because they do sort of collate all of the impacts. And you're seeing Already across the global south, many countries having their GDPs reduced by 20, 30 percent from what they would be without climate change already today. And if you project those impacts forward, you know, several decades, you're talking about many of these countries potentially losing the very possibility of economic growth at all because of the combined impacts on on agriculture, on, you know, and drought. There's also a relationship between temperature and violence. So it, it tends to create more conflict both within states and between states. You know, it's it's really the whole the whole gamut. I spoke one of the other activists I spoke to in the in the article, an Indian activist named Disharavi, said to me very bluntly, like in India, we we have the whole climate crisis. It's not one impact. It's you want floods, we got those. You got droughts, we we got those. You got water shortages, we got those. You got hurt, you want hurricanes, you got those. And in fact, India is, um, according to some uh, research, expected to shoulder the burden of about a quarter of all global climate impacts this century, even though, of course, it's it's just one country. It, and is it also the case that you, you mentioned that there's research showing that this is already making poor countries poorer? Is it is the research showing that it's making rich countries? But there's some research to suggest that particularly in Scandinavia, Canada and in Russia, that the impacts are already are positive and, and will continue to be positive. You know, it makes some farmland up there more productive. People, in fact, are more productive economically when they at certain temperature levels. So these are countries that are quite cold and they're being made slightly warmer. The U.S. is already suffering and is expected to suffer actually somewhat considerably this century if warming trends continue, not like people in India or Uganda or Kenya will, but at a different level than the countries of Northern Europe we think of often as our peers will, and much more in line with the countries of the Mediterranean who are, again, also suffering already from climate impacts, although much smaller ones than those felt in the developing world. And David, in your article, you do try to do some math to get an actual number for what wealthy nations owe for all of this damage and and having profited from this damage, as you point out. And it's complicated. And you say you do this as more of a provocation than a real accounting. But still, it adds up to $250 trillion. Why that number? Well, I started with um, the fact that we know you know, we, we talked to earlier, carbon hangs in the air for centuries, so it doesn't really disappear. What Any damage that's been done, any carbon that's been produced, it's still up there. It's still on the ledger. We know the total amount of carbon, and we can divide it country by country. The U.S. is responsible for about 20% of all global historical emissions, which is about twice as many as the country that's produced the second most, which is China. And China, of course, has somewhere between three and four times as many people. So on a per capita basis, we're at something like 10 times the Chinese impact. And many of the countries that follow down that ledger are have done even less. So the U.S. towers above all of the other countries in the world in terms of its responsibility for this crisis. 
So that's the like, how much carbon did we put into the air tabulation? And then the other part is how much would it cost to take that carbon out? This is a little bit complicated, but I tried to take seriously the real meaning of the term reparations and tried to figure out what the dollar um, amount would be to actually repair the climate, not just to, as um, Vanessa Nakate was talking about, not just to pay for the damage that's been caused, but to actually undo the damage that's been caused um, to the atmosphere. And that may sound a little far-fetched, but actually, first of all, we do it all the time. Trees take carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into oxygen, but we also have technology that can do it or promises to do it at significantly greater scale. There are a lot of problems with this technology. It's There are limitations. It's extremely expensive, much more expensive than avoiding putting carbon in the atmosphere in the first place. But we do have those machines. They do take carbon out of the air and they do store that carbon permanently. And while they're doing it now for something like $500 or $600 a ton um, of, of carbon, most researchers expect that within a decade or so, with, especially with public support, that figure could fall to about $100 a ton. So I use that figure, $100 a ton. Um, and just also- to clarify, because with public support, meaning that the government could buy the, 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 the carbon itself. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, there's no market for the captured carbon at this point at all, which means for any of this tech to go forward and for any of this um, repair, climate repair to take place will require public support, um, public investment. It's possible that some markets will develop, but probably not at the scale that we're talking about if we're really hoping to actually undo the damage that we've done to the, to the climate and take, eventually reduce carbon concentrations below where they are now. So all you have to do is multiply $100 a ton by the number of tons that we've produced. The U.S. has produced 509 gigatons, which is 509 billion tons. So you multiply 509 billion by 100, and you get $50 trillion. That's the U.S. debt. Um, you can do that for all the individual countries of the world, or you could do it for all the countries of the world as a, as a whole, which it gives you the figure um, that you mentioned earlier, which is $250 trillion. And that is obviously a lot. It's more than half of all the wealth that exists in the world today. But one of the appealing things about even entertaining this thought experiment is that carbon capture technology like this, carbon removal technology like this, doesn't have to take place in the next 10 years, which means we wouldn't have to pay that $250 trillion bill by 2030. In fact, it would be designed to operate um, in an ongoing way, possibly over the course of a century or more. Um, And if you were talking about funding an effort like this at that time scale, then the dollar figure shrinks considerably. You know, if you're doing $250 trillion over 100 years, you have a much smaller bill than if you're trying Mm -hmm. to do it in a single decade. A lot of activists point out, absolutely rightly, we don't want to lean too much on this tech. We don't want to trust in it too much um, because it's often understood to be a sort of an invitation to continue burning fossil fuels. And we wouldn't be able to do the work of climate repair and climate restoration. And it is, in fact, the fossil fuel companies, it's something that they point to. They say, oh, we'll happily do this. Yeah, when they talk about their net zero targets, they're almost entirely talking about just funding carbon removal in the second half of the century when they assume it'll be very cheap. Um, there is that moral hazard problem. We do need to get to net zero to really entertain this project because if we're still putting carbon in the atmosphere, it's going to be that much more difficult, that much more expensive to continue taking it out. And yet, if you're thinking about you know engineering or mobilizing a political response to climate change, not just on the next five or 10 years, which is how most advocates have thought over the last couple of years, but engineering a response that would take place over 50 years or 100 or 150, that really does change some of the logic. It does mean that the political forces that could govern systems like this could be very different than they are today and may even be engineered in a, in a much more progressive way to benefit the people chiefly in the global south, although poor people in richer parts of the world as well, rather than to benefit the fossil fuel companies, which is how the system is set up today. 
We've just heard clips today, starting with the United States of Anxiety explaining the history of the Conference of Parties. Tisky Sauer analyzed the numbers behind the warming estimates. The United States of Anxiety explained historical emissions and the divide between the rich and poor of the world. The Brian Lehrer Show explored the ideas of a just transition for underdeveloped nations and the role of carbon markets. Tisky Sauer explained many of the pitfalls inherent in depending on so-called nature-based solutions, including indigenous stewardship. While Consider This followed a group of indigenous activists through their experience attending the COP, and the United States of Anxiety added up the carbon debt owed by the world's wealthiest nations. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips, including Tisky Sauer scratching beneath the surface of rhetoric versus action in the negotiations. You have to take the public statements uh, with a bit of pinch of salt. So John Kerry speaks a very good game to the public on the outside and from the big plenaries. But behind the scenes in the actual negotiations, the United States have been pretty obstructive. And this is hell looked ahead to a warming world in which the primary response is militarization of borders. This seems to be a trend that the richest countries then start to, uh, rather than tackle the underlying causes elsewhere they, and, and globally, they start to retreat behind walls and play a much more uh, aggressive nationalistic position. And I think we're seeing some trends like that starting to happen in India and China as well. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... I have a little bit of a follow-up to my previous discussion from last week about uh, my sort of theory on the conservative drift that people seem to go through with age. At least that's sort of the folk wisdom, right, is that people get more conservative with age. People have just been saying it sort of mindlessly for ages now. And so the way I was talking about it was actually sort of refuting the idea that people shift and become more conservative with age. I was arguing more along the lines that people stay pretty similar, and as society shifts, they end up being left behind and become relatively more conservative, sort of subjectively more conservative. And I was bringing this up in the context of people like Bill Maher and Dave Chappelle, who were very famously to the left of the mainstream 20 years ago and are now angry at the left for calling them out for having sort of shifted in relation to society, that they have not kept up with society and so now they are relatively conservative by comparison. So th that was the conversation that happened uh, about a week ago, I think. And now Jeff, just, you know, listener Jeff, has written in, sent me a couple of interesting articles on the subject. The first I have snippets from is, it's an article from the University of Chicago Press, do people really become more conservative as they age? And this is a you know, an article that's behind a paywall, so I can only read from the abstract, but it says, quote, consistent with previous research, but contrary to folk wisdom, our results indicate that political attitudes are remarkably stable over the long term. And then continuing in another section, it says, quote, in contrast to previous research, however, 
we also find support for folk wisdom on those occasions when political attitudes do shift across the lifespan, liberals are more likely to become conservatives than conservatives are to become liberals, end quote. And, you know, I'm sure, as, as with any study or research or anything like that uh, along these lines, you could read it multiple ways, and you'd really have to dive into the data to, to deeply understand, you know, how were the questions being asked, who was being asked, at what point in their lives, were they asked more than once over the course of their lives, and on and on and on. The abstract does not go into that level of detail. But just reading the abstract, it really strikes me as being in line with my theory of political attitudes. The idea that a person doesn't actually change that much, as they said, political attitudes are remarkably stable. But if someone is going to switch, they are going to consider themselves to have shifted from one to the other. It's more likely for them to become conservative than to shift and become liberal. That's exactly in line with what I was saying. So that's interesting. But then there's a second article which seems to take a different tack. This is an article from Live Science titled Busting Myth, People Turn More Liberal with Age. And so this is referring to surveys that were done, and it says, quote, The surveys assessed attitudes on politics, economics, race, gender, religion, and sexuality issues. In some cases, such as racial issues and questions of civil liberties for communists, the researchers measured a greater change toward liberalism in older people than in younger people. And just to parse that out, the change toward liberalism happened more in older people than younger people. So they're arguing that basically everyone is becoming more liberal and older people shift faster. Continuing, it's, I think this second quote sort of clarifies it a little bit. Quote, people might find an average 60-year-old to be more conservative than an average 30-year-old, but beware of extrapolating a trend. The older person, for example, might have started off even more conservative than he or she is now, end quote. So basically, over time, we shift toward more liberal thinking, particularly on these, what we refer to as uh, mostly social issues. They do talk about economics a little bit, but there's a lot of politics, race, gender, religion, sexuality, all the social issues. So according to this, we tend to shift more toward liberalism on these topics as we age. And at first glance, these two articles seem to be at odds with one another. One says that political attitudes stay basically static, with the caveat that of the people who do change, more move towards conservatism. And the other says that people's views get more liberal over time. But in the context of my wave metaphor that I used the last time I talked about this, sort of talking about the wave being mainstream societal opinion that you can either be sort of ahead of, on top of, or behind this moving wave. But the wave is moving. And in that context, I think this makes sense. Essentially, everyone's views tend to get more liberal over time, but, it seems, the average speed of that shift in the individual is still slower than for society as a whole. So you think about a person born in the 
1950s who supported racial segregation at the time, that person, all grown up today, could still very well have absolutely terrible opinions about black people, but no longer believe that we need segregated schools, water fountains, and pools. So congratulations to that person. They are now more liberal than they used to be, but they are still being passed by by the rest of society, maybe by a wide margin. So while they may have been in the mainstream during their youth, and although their thinking has moved to the left, has become more progressive, more liberal over the years, they'd still be considered more conservative today than they were before comparing them to mainstream society because that spectrum just keeps moving. That wave keeps moving. And most importantly, for understanding these surveys and and how to make these questions and answers make sense, that person who we would consider extremely conservative today would still very likely self-report as conservative, and, and quite rightly, even though they are slightly less conservative than they were 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, at least on some social issues. Just ask all the conservative Christians who have switched to being accepting of homosexuality and same-sex marriage in just the last 20 years. They probably still consider themselves conservative, but they have become more liberal, at least on that topic, as a for instance. Now, to wrap up, unsurprisingly, I did get a note from a conservative who made the traditional argument that I even mentioned in the show, I don't know if he heard it or not, that... You know, he argued that, well, people just get smarter and therefore more conservative with age. So Larry asks kind of rhetorically, why we become conservative with age? We learn what works, human nature, utopia versus reality. Old white men really do know more than you do. I used to be a liberal. I grew up and understand reality. So that was from Larry. And if that argument was coming from a sort of conservative corporate Democrat or like a Scandinavian conservative, I think it would make a lot more sense than in America. You know, if, if you're, you know, a little on, on the older side, you've, you've learned that change doesn't happen quickly. And when it does, it can be really messy. So you might actually desire a little bit less ambitiousness in your change, but you still want interest in the public good to prevail you know, don't quote me on this because I, I couldn't find the story, but I'm pretty sure I heard a story, you know, years and years ago that a conservative party member from a Scandinavian country in Denmark, Norway, somewhere, somewhere like that, said that they loved Barack Obama and thought that he would fit in perfectly with their conservative party. And I, I think that tells you a lot of what you need to know about the difference in, uh, you know, America to a lot of the rest of the world. So, you know, there's a conservative argument that is not what we think of as an American conservative argument. There is a conservative argument that lives today in mainstream Democrats or Scandinavian conservatives who would argue that incremental change, this sort of don't rock the boat too much conservatism, is the path to a more careful, a more stable change, whereas radical change can be messy and destabilizing to social cohesion and maybe even cause more problems than it solves. I can at least take that as an intellectually honest concern and think it's a worthwhile debate to have on any given topic that, you know, any any issue that we're debating, any change we're proposing. I think that's a worthwhile discussion to have. Nothing along the lines of 
learning more and understanding what works and human nature, as Larry described, explains American conservatism that has pivoted to nonsensical trickle-down economics, anti-science climate denialism, angry nativism, and nearly overt white supremacy. So if Larry considers himself a conservative, and by that means, hey, I'm glad Bernie Sanders didn't win and we got someone much more inclined to incrementalism, then I have no problem with that. That is what conservatism in a healthy society looks like. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com